Good morning. I will be reading Joel 3, 12 to 14, and it's on your pew Bible, page 841. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress wine is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And now reading from the New Testament, from Revelation 14, 14 to 20, if you would like to follow along in your pew Bibles. Harvesting the earth and trampling the winepress, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, harvesting the earth and trampling the winepress. It's good to be back with you and among the land of the living. Um, thank you so much for your, your uh, kind words and the cards that you prepared and, and uh, sent me last week. Thank you for carrying on without me. It just proves definitively that uh, no one is irreplaceable. Uh, life goes on. Um, and so it's just uh, really a joy to, to be back and, and to let you know that I'm doing very well, in case you were, were wondering. I walked three miles this morning, <coughs> ate my oatmeal breakfast, and... Uh, well, I have some energy left anyway. That's the ongoing challenge. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, we talked about soils, toils, and so forth. Preparing for this sermon on the harvest. Now, as part of the curse, we till the ground and do so with the sweat of our brow in order to bring forth some kind of harvest that we might eat. Earth's provisions are still bountiful, but there's a lot of effort that goes into soil preparation 
It goes into preparing good seed. It goes into planting that seed. It goes into the harvest. We talked about some of the variables that are different in ancient times in agriculture and contemporary times. Certainly, the invention of irrigation has radically transformed the way we think of producing crops and the way in which we farm. These massive irrigation canals and projects that we've been able to develop, and California has one that's, I think if we thought about it, really one of the seven wonders of the world, probably. It's an amazing structure of aqueducts and, and channels that allow billions and trillions of gallons of water to flow to farmland that would otherwise be desert and produce enormous amounts of fruit and vegetables for feeding the world. We talked a little bit about how seed, yes. Oh, thank you. How seed uh, and, and so forth affects harvest. How the parables Jesus tells show that there was one who was an enemy who came and sowed tares along with the wheat. And his servants said, did you not use good seed? And the master said, I did, but an enemy has done this. And they said, shall we, shall we weed the fields? Shall we pull up the tares? And Jesus said, no. Wait until harvest time. Then take your sickles, cut the weeds, and we burn them in the fire. And then take your sickle to the wheat. We'll harvest and thresh it and have, have food after all, have a crop after all. Jesus told a lot of agrarian-type farm-type modeled illustrations. And his parable on the soils was one of those, the hard soil on which the birds pluck up the seed, the soil that grows in very shallow, uh, the seed that grows in very shallow soil springs up and is burnt by the sun, the seed that gets choked out by the weeds, and then finally that one seed that ends up in good soil and produces 20, 40, 60, 80 times what it originally was. Jesus describes these things to tell us just in very clear terms, and even the disciples then needed explanations, go figure, what the kingdom of God was about. How at the end of the story, in each case, it's about the multiplication of the grain. Not only that there will be seed for future plantings, but that there will be leftover and bounty to sustain now. But the ultimate of agrarian illustrations, of farming illustrations and models, really focuses on something that we started to hit with the two texts read today. That is, the harvest at the end of time. We're in a season of late harvest, as it were. I don't know what to make of global warming. That uh, seems to be a political issue. You something you believe or don't believe. Uh, I happen to sort of observe the world around me and experience that the climate in which I have grown up and lived in has significantly changed. But there was a time when by November, you didn't have 97 degree weather. There used to be a time when by November, there were a few rains. Or in November, you could at least expect uh, long-sleeve weather, if not sweater weather, in California. Am I fading in and out? Okay, so I understand it's coming in and out sequencing-wise. 
Is my voice stopping and starting in the microphone? No, it's continuous? Okay. Sorry. Um, there was a time when, in Minnesota, everything was done by November. All of the northern states, in fact, were having their frosts and even early snows by then. So, I don't know what's going on. It's hard to draw the same conclusions as what, what we were living with 40, 50, 60 years ago. But at the end of the day, at least theoretically, we're in late harvest season now. The idea being that everything has been gathered that can be gathered. The fields will lie fallow through the winter. The storehouses are full. And God's blessing has been felt in the harvest. It's one of those things that leads us to this moment of thanksgiving. And I know that there is a historical and a political element to the American thanksgiving that I'm not, not giving due to here. But in harvest celebrations around the world, the notion of gratitude for the provisions of life dominate the season, permeate every aspect of the way in which people experience the flow of life food coming in and seed going out in the spring to be planted for yet another harvest. We used to have a program called Harvest in Gathering. Anybody remember that? Oh man, I'm getting old. Seven of you. There will come a day when it's only three. I'll be retiring then. Um, Harvest in Gathering used to be... Uh, an effort we made going door-to-door -door in communities, sharing with people our community service efforts and asking them to please donate, and then, of course, providing tracts and literature to them. I don't know whether the harvest was the coinage we gathered for our programs or the harvest was the few who read the materials that we presented and came to Christ as a result of it, but it was something we used to do. People knew who Adventists were because they were the people who came around with a can knocking on their door and, and either singing carols or blasting them through some sort of cheap eight-track thing mounted to the roof. Hopefully you were never tacky enough to do that here. In my hometown, we did that in a few, a few places and times, but mostly we went out caroling. We have themes each year. I don't know if you're aware, but the General Conference declares every year some sort of theme, and they name it. And so it's... Uh, 2006, the year of harvest, or whatever. They have a slogan or a theme that they, they embrace. So many of them have to do with harvest, with gathering in. And so when we think about evangelism or personal sharing, when we think about multiplying as individuals, being the kind of seed that's planted and becomes 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 for the kingdom of God, we think of the harvest and how absolutely critical that is in the notion of God's kingdom and sharing in the richness and the fullness of the goodness of God here and in the world to come. The Bible is full of language about this. How many of you know the difference between a sickle and a scythe? A few of you know. Do you want to tell me the difference?
So the primary difference might be in the shape of the blade and the length of the handle. Is that what you're saying? He got it right, didn't he? Which is the longer one, the scythe or the sickle? The scythe is the longer one. The scythe has a long handle and sometimes a secondary handle and a partially curved blade. It's very sharp and you whip it back and forth like this to do the harvest. How many of you have a weed whacker thing by hand? It's like a golf club with sharp edges on both sides. Aren't those fun? I have one, I have one of those. I like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. you know, you, it really takes the aggression out. It's, I highly recommend it. It's, it's therapeutic and good for the yard, too, unless, of course, you get too close to the tulips, in which case uh, your wife is not going to be happy, man. Um, but the scythe was that kind of idea, and people would take the scythe out and harvest grain, and it, it's uh, not so common in biblical times. The sickle was more common. It, as was correctly noted, is a short-handled instrument with a curved blade. And the imagery that we see painted in Joel and in Revelation today is of the sickle. I didn't know how to spell this. So I spent a lot of time entering different renditions of sickle into the computer. And believe it or not, it's just S-I-C-K-L-E at the end of the day. I wanted to make it fancy like scythe, which is S-C-Y-T-H-E. So anyway... The sharpened sickle would be the instrument, do you remember when we were going through the story of Ruth? That the harvesters were using to gather grain. And they might have missed a few stalks of grain as they went through the fields, and those would have been the stalks of grain that Naomi would have come behind and harvested herself and, and filled her, her lap bag with. Sickle is mentioned over and over and over in Scripture as this instrument of Harvest And primarily, we're talking about grain harvests, wheat, barley, these sort of sustaining carbohydrate pieces uh, that, that seem to be in common to all cultures. Either rice or some kind of grain seems to be a staple in the human, human environment and diet. And grasses are very hardy. And as you know, wheat and barley are part of the grass family very hardy, and so they, they produce in places that you wouldn't even think they could. So this sickle becomes the instrument of the harvest. And in our text today, there's an interesting juxtaposition. I'm going to make a, a comment, and I hope you don't take it too seriously. Uh, it, it appears that the wheat harvest, or the harvest of the grain, is for God. That is the good harvest. The harvest of the red grape and the pressing it into wine is an analogy for the destruction of the wicked and the blood that flows at the end of time as they are pressed in the wine press of God's wrath. Now, we don't have much experience, at least I don't, with either sickles and wheat harvest or with sickles and grape harvest and wine pressing. But our German Lutheran friends must have a point when they declare beer to be God's beverage as opposed to wine. That was my little joke. As Adventists, we askew both, right? So at the end of the day, you have the two at polar ends and opposites. Now, there's nothing wrong with a grape harvest, is there? I had raisins in my oatmeal this morning. You probably did too. 
Uh, we, we drink grape juice all the time. We use grape products as sweeteners and other juices. There's all kinds of uses. In fact, grape, grape skins are very high in antioxidants. So they're one of the foods that we're recommended to eat regularly as a cancer-fighting part of our diet. And grape seeds contain something called pycnogenols, which are another form of antioxidant, which also work in our bodies in interesting ways. And there are all sorts of health products, pills, whatever, that are made from these pycnogenols and so forth. So at the end of the day, there's not a literal thing that we're talking about. Wheat's good and, gra- and, and grapes are bad. We're talking about two different kinds of harvest. We're talking about the Lord's harvest, That is to say, all who have believed and all who have been multiplied in their belief. There's all kinds of books about this. Contagious Christian, (coughs) so forth and so forth. I don't know if we've read any of them. But the call to each of us is to be fruitful and multiply, and that doesn't mean just having children. What it means is, to reproduce for the kingdom of God. It's called discipleship. Jesus uh, was aware that the the, uh, Pharisees were very good at this, but he was disturbed by their methods. He said, you'll travel a thousand miles to win a single convert, and when you're done with him, you've made him twice the son of the devil that you are. That's the sort of evangelism I call back with a vengeance. People trying to make up for their previous lives by condemning everyone around them in their new lives. It's not the harvest of the Lord. We're talking about a discipleship that moves in our families. We're talking about a discipleship of our own children. We're talking about a discipleship that's an example to our neighbors and our friends. We're talking about taking that opportunity not to share with someone the gospel of not eating shrimp or to share with them the good news about the 2,300 days before the 1,000... You you get the picture. But to take that opportunity to share with people our hope, our faith, our trust, our conviction, our doubt. To stand with them in doubt is an act of faith. Do you believe that? Or do you think I'm just talking? I want to tell you, doubt is not the opposite of faith. What do you think the opposite of faith is? It's apathy. It's apathy. And it's a scary world in which we live because there's just growing apathy about anything meaningful, let alone anything religious. Growing ignorance about anything meaningful. The very things embedded in our language meant to convey meaning have been lost and diluted. We no longer pay attention to them. We no longer know what they mean. Apathy is the opposite of faith. Doubt is the cousin. Doubt is what makes faith what it can be. 
and doubt sits close to it so that we know we're not dealing with certainty. There are two problems in this life when we come to religion, and they're both based in certainty. Certainty that we know God and the mind of God in such a way that we can be absolutely sure our perspective is the perspective. Fundamentalism acts on these principles and demands that the world think exactly the same as it does, whether we're talking about jihad and Muslim fundamentalism or Christian fundamentalism or scientific reductionism. We're talking about the same thing. And we're talking about a true atheism as well. An agnostic and a Christian could walk hand in hand through life pretty well, I think. A true atheist stands on the certainty that there is no God and becomes subject to all of the same problems, philosophically and practically speaking, that one who believes they know the mind of God is subject to. Doubt allows us to approach one another with grace and with humility with the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of experience. It allows us to share, to teach, and to learn, to walk lockstep and arm in arm in discipleship and mentorship. And faith is where we go out of doubt to remind ourselves of the goodness of a God who for us is and always will be, but remains enshrouded in at least a degree of mystery. Faith without mystery is certainty. And we're called to a life of faith. So the harvest isn't optional. The harvest isn't a piece that we get to just pay attention to Seasonally is something representative of what we eat. It's about the very productivity of our own lives spiritually. It's about yielding seed and grain for the kingdom. It's about the fatness. It's about the goodness of our God. It's about being contagious as Christians. It's about sharing our doubt and our faith. It's about a journey. Is that too ambiguous? Or does that give you something to grab a hold of and run with? I hope it gives you something to grab a hold of and run with. I know it doesn't work for me when a pastor or when an evangelist or when a PhD in theology stands up and tells me what that looks like. Well, Greg, you need to be up at five. You need to read your Bible, preferably in the order in which it was written and for 15 minutes. And then you need to pray for 30 minutes. And this is the checklist that you must go through as you pray. Prayer is, after all, a formula. And if you push the right buttons, you'll get the right candy bar out of the cosmic vending machine in the sky. That kind of spirituality doesn't work for me. I know it works for some. And I'm not mocking you. We're all different. We are all different, gifted differently, 
Our productivity will look and feel different, but together we're called to be productive for the kingdom of God. Now, the grapes. For whatever reason, the wine press has become the symbol of God's wrath. It's pretty potent when you think about it. In biblical times, we're talking about grapes dumped into a giant vat and trampled, much as they do in various parts of the world still today. Squashed underfoot. And out of the, the edges of this wine vat, this grape vat, flow juice that will eventually be filtered in some ways and put in barrels and made into something that is lasting. Something that provides for the culture. God makes this analogy with the grapes and the trampling of his wrath. And so the harvest is split, isn't it? Just like the sheep are separated from the goats. Just like there were those inside the ark of safety by faith and those who stood outside and said, what are you talking about? Just as those who, who are responsive in some way to the Spirit of God to this day, and those who have become blind and insensitive to it. After all, Jesus said, if you have ears, hear. If you have eyes, see what the Spirit is doing. We need to slow our lives down for those sensitivities. And take a moment to focus to train ourselves to look and see, to hear and listen. And then there's this other group that never manages this. They, they willfully, deliberately, at every possible invitation, turned God away. Said, you're not for me. A relationship with you is not what I desire. And there's an angel with a sickle in his hand. I'm not going to literalize this for you. I don't believe for a minute that Jesus is going to show up with a wooden-handled, iron-bladed sickle. This is a metaphor. Jesus is going to harvest the earth of those who are his. And the angel designated for this purpose is going to harvest the wicked for the death which will be their separation from the God who loved them and made them. The final tragedy in this long story that we've been living. The harvest is all important because we end up in one group or the other. We're grain brought to the storehouses of our God, multiplied, or we're grapes trampled in the winepress of his wrath. We have clear choices. We have clear choices. Before we go to our closing hymn today, our offertory and our, our closing hymn, I just want to take a minute it's not 11 o'clock, not 11.15. It's amazing how many of us come after those times. I just want to share a couple of burdens on my heart with you today. The first is an invitation I hope you'll all accept because it's taken up the better part of the year, enormous amounts of emotional and other effort 
on my part and even more effort on people like Paul Cardi's part. Paul, will you wave at everybody let them know you're here? Paul has put hundreds of hours into this. You have put $18,000 of church resources into this go-around alone. It's the biggest challenge I've faced since I've been here, and that's the challenge that we have as a body to reestablish in this city what we used to have, the right to have a K-8 elementary school on this campus and or a preschool on this campus. When we built this place, bought it and built it in 1960 and upward to 68, and then again in 2002 or three, our vision was that we would be able to host various entities here, including our own. Our vision was that this would be a campus bustling with activity as it had always been. Our vision was that this place would be a center for our community. We want to get to that vision. We're asking the city to restore our rights with no sunset clause, that is to say permanently, give us back the right to have education here. We're arguing it on legal grounds with an attorney. We've hired a consultant who knows the city officials and can glad hand with them and let them know in clear terms why this is a moral and just project. We've put together binders with exhibits on everything from drawings of the facility and its occupancy capabilities to refutations of claims that unkind neighbors have made about our presence here. I've put it in the bulletin. I've made announcements about it. I've talked about it. And yet at the last MUP hearing, there were less than 30 of us there. Cancel the kids' karate lesson that night. Tell the coach that you can't make practice that night. Eat dinner out and early. Tell your boss you have to be off work at 5 or 4.30 or whatever it takes to get up here. On Tuesday evening, November 16, we have a one-shot opportunity. We gather at City Hall. We gather at 6.30. Hopefully we gather as 150 people, because that's what we need. When the doors open, we walk into the City Council, actually, Commission hearing room, and we take our seats. Some of you will be asked to offer speeches ranging from 30 minutes to two and a half minutes. At the end of the hearing, the city commissioners will rule on whether we get our MUP or whether we don't. They'll decide what exceptions they want to, to put on that MUP, what limitations they want to put on it. We're asking them to put next to none. If we are there 150 strong, if we are there to demonstrate our faith, our solidarity, and our trust, it will communicate very loudly our priorities and our intentions. If there are 20 or 30 of us again there, we may yet prevail, but the outcome is far less certain. So this is heavy on my plate, has been for a long time. I hesitated to even go ahead with my surgery, which I needed to have, because this is coming up and I didn't want to lose time, have my energies to focus diminished on this. So I'm asking you, Tuesday evening, it's in your bulletin, Tuesday evening, November 16th at 6.30 to be at City Hall.
I trust that you'll make those arrangements to the best of your abilities. I realize there are a few of you who just absolutely can't. But I hope then you'll send others, that you'll send family and friends that will make this a moment of victory for our church. The second has to do with discipleship and leadership. Things change. I don't like that. I'm kind of a guy who likes good things to stay good, don't you? But when good things stay good, we miss the opportunity both to learn from what follows, whether it's difficult or whether it's great. Isn't that true? And change comes whether we like it or not. We work here together in a volunteer organization. And so this last go-around with our uh, nominating committee process, we've had some leaders who've decided to take a step away. There are vacuums in those spots. I'm going to be approaching some of you, but I want you to be thinking and praying about what areas you might step into that you haven't exercised leadership or faith in before. As an ancillary to that on the plate, we need to be mentoring those who will take our places someday. We may move. We may find our fortunes have shifted. We may retire. Who knows what will cause a shift in our own priorities or, or thinking. But if we've trained someone up behind us, God can do great things for the harvest. And I mentioned at 11 o'clock, and I just mentioned it again in brief, next week we have an opportunity to all get trained in something that could potentially be great for our church in helping it grow. If you can, please join us at 2 o'clock. We're going to have a seminar by the Master Greeter who will help all of us improve our serve to one another and to the visitors who come through our door. And I, I want to do other trainings this next year, so I, I just wanted the opportunity to share that with you. Well, that's kind of it for the things heavy on my heart. I think there are many other projects. I could cite things at our academies. I could cite uh, challenges that work here. But I hope that as a community, we'll take the challenges before us and grow. Because the Lord of the harvest is one day going to come with a figurative sickle in his hand. He's going to reach forth his arm upon the earth and gather those who are his. He's going to look for the harvest. And he's going to order the collection and the trampling of those who aren't part of that. Together, we can choose to do that. I did remember one more thing. Faithfulness, I know the economy is tough. I know many of you are hurting personally. My prayers go with your families constantly. I'm not expecting the one who has nothing to, to be the miracle. But I am hoping that together, all of us, by being faithful in our offerings, our tithes, can here at your end make up some of the difference with the gap that's opened up. We're doing really well in terms of spending. This church has spent some $16,000 less than it's budgeted. We've done pretty well, in fact, incredibly well, with paying off our multipurpose room. Come February or March, that will be done. We will have paid off our mortgage, and in only about seven years. Despite financial challenges this last year, 
our reserves have remained constant. We're only down about $1,000 against last year's reserve numbers. But we're coming into a season where if we, if we don't step up and make the year-end donations that we need to make, if we don't together shoulder the burden of church budget, as unglamorous as that sounds, we're going to be headed in a different direction. And I'd like to see us move forward together in faith on that as well. Again, to the harvest. So forgive me for uh, having that lapse and not including that with the others, but uh, we do collect offering in response to what God has given us today at this time. Uh, let the deacons step forward and please be generous with our church budget. And so, Lord of the harvest, make us ready. In Jesus' name, amen.